I will tell you, parents, the, the topic we're looking at today is um, may be intense. If you keep your kids in here, just be forewarned. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to cause you to have conversations prematurely that you don't want to have with your kids. Or you're not ready to have your kids, and um, just just warning you, just throwing it out there. So if, if you keep your kids in here, um, just throwing it out there. So we're in a series where we are addressing areas where Christianity and culture collide, and today we are looking at the issue of sexual immorality. And it goes way beyond just that, but uh, the idea that we have been bought with a price, and thank you for Daniel for reminding us of that this morning. And I realize on the front end that this can be a tough issue. I realize that, uh, I realize that it can be an uncomfortable issue to talk about these things, but I, I don't want us to be a church that shies away from the tough things. I want us to be a church that, that meets culture head on where it is. And the reality is that... that that we live in a sex-crazed culture. We, we live in a culture that has made sex um, really a worshipped thing. And, and, and if anyone wonders, if anyone thinks that not to be the case, if I, I'm not sure what world you live in, but let me let's share some stats with you. And these are from a, a Barna study from 2014. The following percentages of men say they view pornography at least once a month. 18 to 30-year-olds surveyed, 79%. 31 to 49-year-olds, 67%. 50 to 68-year-olds, 49%, once a month. The following percentage of men say they view pornography at least several times a week. 18 to 30-year-olds, 63%. 31 to 49-year-olds, 38%. 50 to 68-year-olds, 25%. But before we think this is a man issue, the following percentages of women say they view pornography at least once a month. 18 to 30-year-olds, 76%. 31 to 49-year-olds, 16%. 50 to 68-year-old women, 4%. The following... Uh, it goes on uh, multiple times a week for women. Before you think this is an 18 and older issue, 21% of high school students surveyed said they viewed pornography once a day. 20% of 16-year-olds said that they have received a sext. That is a, that is a sexting is sending a suggestive or nude photo to somebody for their viewing. So you're sending a nude a photo of yourself through a text. It's called a sext. 30%, so 20% of 16-year-olds said they had received one. 30% of 17-year-olds said they had received a sext. Six, a, a, a survey of 500 teens, 60% said that they had been asked or they had been asked for an explicit photo or video of themselves. 60% had been asked to send an explicit picture or video of themselves. 58% of college students said that they regularly looked at things on the internet, pornography, that they shouldn't. The, the reality is this. The statistics inside the church and outside the church are almost identical. That's where it's challenging. They're almost identical. We live in a, we live in a world 
where sex trafficking is a $58 billion a year industry. $58 billion a year where people own people and force them to commit acts with other people so that the people who own them can profit. Slavery. They're sex slaves. I, I read a stat that, that individuals make over $250,000 a year per slave. $250,000 a year per, per slave. Pornography, $13 billion a year industry. Every, I saw a stat. Every second, $3,000 is spent on pornography. Every second, 28,000 people are looking at sexually explicit or graphic pictures on the internet. Every second. I, I, if we're honest, everywhere we look, whether it's Facebook, TV, billboards, we're being pursued with, with immorality of all kinds. It, 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 this is not... This is a, not a, a homosexual thing. This is a heterosexual problem. The reality is this. The reality is this, man. If you're a heterosexual male here today, you represent the vast majority of the problem. The vast, vast majority of this industry is targeted to heterosexual males. This is our issue. Inside and outside the church, the, wor the world wants us to view sex outside of the bounds of God's Word. It wants us to even to view people and other people outside the bounds. That, that person you're looking at is a creation of God. It is somebody's wife. It is somebody's daughter. Many of whom are being forced to do these things against their will. Many of whom, whom once they finally break three or free from these things, are, are, are letting the world know what's going on in these places. They're not, you, we think, oh, they, they, no, no, they don't love it. Most, some maybe, but most are, are hated. They're there, they're caught. And the reality is what makes this so scary is this is, this is no longer a thing where, you, you know, it's just magazines at the gas station, so to speak. This is an issue that is in every single one of our houses. It, it is Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at your door looking for someone to devour. If you have the internet, it's a click away. If you have a phone with the internet, if your children have a phone with the internet, listen to me, it's a click away. And not only a click away, they're sending it after you. They're coming after you. This sexual industry, this sex industry, this whatever you want to call it, it is, it is, our gener it is my generation's tobacco industry. They are seeking to hook Men and women, boys and girls, earlier and earlier and earlier. It's there. Lindy, Lindsay Anderson and her family, they'll tell you, they deal with the repercussions of this every day with women. They have a ministry, Mount Moriah, that deal with the repercussions of this. This is a sin that is crouching at our door. It is easily accessible. The, the challenge is this. It's the anonymity of it all. It's anonymous. And the world wants us to believe that it's victimless. There's two victims. The person being watched and the person watching are being destroyed. 
destroyed. And again, nobody in their right mind, if you, I, I mean, I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, and, and, you know, they have friends in their neighborhood, and, and it seems like my kids are the only ones that don't have phones. I'm like, what is a fifth grade? Who are you calling in fifth grade? And, and not only that, listen to me, parents are so foolish, they have internet on the phone. What does a fifth grader need with internet? It, it's coming after us. And if we're not guarding it, it's on the cable. I got about 18,000 channels on cable. I watch about four of them. And most of them are garbage. Garbage. It's coming after us. And here's what I want us to walk away with today. Number one, admitting that it's an issue. Just admit it's an issue. Admit that we've got a battle on our hands. Admit that we better fight. But, but I'm not here to condemn. I'm not here to beat down. I, I want us to see today that God offers us something better, namely Himself. He has offered us something, someone who satisfies and will satisfy beyond what anything that this world has to offer. I, I want us to see as believers who we are in Christ and the harm that these things do to our bodies, any kind of sexual immorality, the harm that it does to our body the harm that it does to our family. And I'm going to beg you with exactly what the Bible begs you. I'm going to beg you to flee. This is not a battle that the Bible says to fight. The Bible unashamedly says flee. Why? Because you won't win the battle. Flee. Flee. Not play around with it. Not see how close you can get to it without falling in. Not argue over what is or what isn't pornography. Not argue over how. No, flee. Purity is fleeing. Purity is seeing how far we can get from the line. It's not seeing how close we can get to the line. It's how far can we get away. Flee. And that, that's the underlying point on your hand out there. We are commanded to flee all forms of sexual morality. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6 with me. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12, and for the sake of time, i got a lot to cover, and I got, I'm going to start reading while y'all turn there. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food, is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but He will also raise us up through, the, through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, verse 18. Every other sin that a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Verses 19 and 20 really summarize quickly why this is such a big deal. We are not our own. Even that right there is so countercultural. I was talking to my mother-in-law last night, and she said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I I was telling her, and she said she had called the Performing Arts Center to 
she has some tickets, and, and the recording was, was uh, about a show where all it was saying is, you're your own person, you're your own person, do whatever you want, live however you want. And while she's on hold, that's what it's telling her. That's what the world's message is. You're your own person, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want with. You only live once, get it in while you can. That, that's the world philosophy. The Bible says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You, as a believer, if you have trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, you are not your own. You don't have say-so over what you do with your body any longer. It's the Lord's body. You're not your own. I want to break this down as this passage does and help us walk out of here with some, just some thoughts about how and why we flee and why this is such a big deal to show us why sexual immorality is so devastating and the harm that it's doing to us and the body of Christ and to families and to individuals. And the first thing you see there, A, on your, on your handout, we belong to God, our body is to be used to glorify the Lord. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, but God will do away with both. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. It's the same thing he says in verses 19 and 20. The basic truth that Paul wants us to know is this. We are not our own. You're not your own, believer. Our body belongs to the Lord. Our body is to be used to glorify the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of the Lord. Why? Because you belong to Him. Our body is for the Lord, not for immorality. We are His. But, but not only that, what verse 13 and following tells us, and it's a truth that we have to grasp, God is for us. He's for us. Since God is for us, listen, everything He commands, whether He says do it or don't do it, everything He commands is for our good because He's for us. Listen, as, as parents, do you put boundaries around your children's behavior? You absolutely, you better. Do, do you do that out of love or out of hate? You do that out of love. You're for them. Therefore, you know wiser than them. And you say, Sarah Bradley, if you run with those scissors, it's going to hurt you. Sarah Bradley, if you do that, it's going to end up hurting you. And they'll say, how do you know? Because I've done it and I've hurt. I know better. I have a different perspective. I'm, I'm 39 years old. I'm not 10. I know at 10, Bradley, you think you know everything. Sarah Grace at 7. I'm 39. I've been there. I've done that. I've been a 10-year-old. I've been a 7-year-old. I thought I knew everything, and I realized I still don't know anything. God's boundaries are good. He is for us. We're His children. He puts boundaries in place to protect us. And when God forbids sexual morality, when He puts a boundary around sex, that is, that is, literally, it's this. It's one man, one woman, under the confines of marriage. That is the playground for sex. God has fenced the playground in, and the fence says one man with one woman who are married. Not who love each other, not who are committed to each other, not who are monogamous to each other. No, married. 
Sex is that which sets my relationship with Karen apart from my relationship with everybody else. Sex. Under the confines of marriage. There's an intimacy there. And God has put boundaries there for our good. I fence in my backyard for my kids' good. Everything within that fence, I say, Bradley, Sarah, everything within that fence, you're good. You're safe. You go outside that fence, you're going to have problems. Boundaries are good. Boundaries are given in love. It's like a fire in a fireplace. That fire is awesome when it's where it's supposed to be. That fire gets out of the fireplace. That fire gets out of the, the fire pit. Guess what? It destroys everything. I remember driving down a road one time and, and, all, and was sitting in a field and all that was left in the field was the fireplace. The house was burned to the ground. All that was left was the fireplace. Interesting. That's some of our lives. God has given us the context and the boundaries for sex and for these things to occur and we've taken them outside the boundaries and we've destroyed everything. I mean, literally what Paul pictures, not only here you have been bought, with a price. You can look at Romans 6, you can look at Romans 7. Literally, believer, when you became a believer, when you, when you repented of your sinfulness, when you accepted the salvation Jesus offered on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, literally God took you from one field or from one master, which was sin, and placed you in another field under another master, which is Christ. You, you were formerly slaves to sin, now you're slaves to God. And as such, you have new boundaries. Your body belongs to God. And again, that right there we, is so opposite to our culture. I'm the, we're the captain of our own ship. This is my life, my body. We talked about it a couple weeks, how we live in a self-hyphenated world. Everything centers on self. There's no more my body. Your body as a believer is God's body. Look, look at verse 15. Three times in this passage, Paul talks about the word members. He, he's literally saying the moment you became a Christian, you became grafted into Christ's body. You are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Listen to me. In the culture in which Paul wrote this, every night over a thousand prostitutes made their way from the temple down into the city. Literally, every night over a thousand prostitutes came looking for trouble. In today's world, every single moment there are thousands of potential prostitutes waiting, in all forms and fashions, waiting, crouching at our door, waiting to devour. Just waiting. And Paul is saying, listen, it would be unthinkable. You are in Christ Later on, we're going to see Christ is in you. It would be unthinkable for you to be sexually immoral. Why? Because your members belong to Christ. And he says, you take your members with you everywhere you go, and you join Christ to whomever you join yourself with. You join Christ, believer. Whatever you get involved in, you get Christ involved with. Every, nearly every single New Testament book talks about this truth. You want to go to Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live in the flesh, I live to the glory of the, of the Father. I've been crucified. No more Chris. It's Christ. 
You want to go to Ephesians 3, 17, 18, that Christ may, he says that he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you would understand that he lives in you. In, in, in Colossians 1.27, he says, this is the reality, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's in you. Think about that. Christ is in you, believer. He's in you. Think about what that means. Whatever I watch, guess who else watches it? Christ watches. Wherever I go, guess who else goes? Christ goes. Whoever I join myself to, guess what? Christ is joined. That's the weight of this point. We belong to Christ. Our body is His to get glory through, not for us to get selfish gratification through. Because the beauty, if we would believe it, is by glorifying Him, we will get the glory. But it will come through Him. We'll get the satisfaction, but it will come through Him. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But, but Paul builds on this. Not only, not only are our bodies His, not, not only are our bodies His to glorify the Lord. Sexual morality, you see B on your handout. Sexual morality is especially devastating. It is a sin against your own body. The, the world will want you to believe that it's victimless. The world will want you to believe that, that sitting behind a computer, it's anonymous, there's no victim, there's, a vic, there's multiple victims. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her? Sex is so much more than a physical thing. There's a, your soul is involved. Your mind is involved. Even here, Paul is counter to his culture. He is opposite. He's saying run opposite. The word joins there is a Greek word that we get our word glue from. He says an immoral man... In this case, or a moral woman literally glues himself or herself to the one who he, who he joins their, their self with. I mean, we live in a world that would want you to believe that sexual acts are purely physical. There's no real involvement, but the Bible says something totally different. He says, it's like gluing yourself. Paul literally here is saying it is impossible to have a physical only sexual relationship. Impossible. It's not just sex. It's never just sex. It involves the whole person. Even, even through the internet, there is, studies will tell you that there is an emotional, there is a, there is an, and, a, and in your mind, it plays games with your mind because it takes you somewhere that you were never meant to go and experiencing things that you were not even meant to experience. It's, it's almost like overstimulation. And your mind releases all of these things that I'm not smart enough to know about. I read about them just to know, but it releases all these things and you start feeling feelings. And, and, and here's the challenge. What satisfied you here eventually no longer satisfies. And so then you go to here. And what satisfies you there eventually no longer satisfies. And then you go to here. And Satan's not going to tell you that on the front end. And he's never going to reveal that. Literally, and even in Genesis 2, 24, he says the two will become one flesh. Literally, one personality, one being. Sex is not inconsequential. It has far-reaching 
effects. Your body is not yours. And we're going to look at it in a minute, but you're the temple. Your body is the temple. It is to be treated differently. When we join ourselves to someone or something as believers, we join Christ. Hear me, you join Christ. It's so much more. Look at verse 18 in our passage. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Here's what Paul is saying. There is something uniquely devastating about sexual sin and sexual immorality. It's different from every other sin. I get it. Sin is sin in the sense of it separates us from God. I get that. But not all sin has the same consequences. You stealing a paperclip, that's sin. It has consequences. You steal another man's wife or another woman's husband, that's a whole different set of consequences. You sin against your own body. We, we, we don't just have sex and walk away. You don't just look at stuff on the computer and then walk away. It, it, there are files in your mind and, and Satan lodges those things in your mind you're going to battle with for the rest of your life. There's going to be triggers that are put in place in your life that you're going to battle with for the rest of your life. You don't just walk away. I would bet even a church as small as this, there are probably people in here who could look back on their, on their younger days, their school days, and think of things they did that they still regret even today, actions that still linger with them today. It's not just sex. It affects you in ways that you never imagined. The world won't want you to hear about that. Satan certainly won't want to disclose that. There is something uniquely devastating about sexual sin. You are literally sinning against your own body. You are poisoning your own body. Paul says flee. But thirdly, he says we have been bought with a price, therefore flee Immorality. He builds to this point. We have been bought with a price. The, 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 really, the only command in this whole section is flee. And the word there in the Greek, it literally would read in the Greek, keep on fleeing. Keep on fleeing. Not fight it. Not grin and bear it. Not, not pull your bootstraps up and hang in there and, and tough it out and just grit your teeth. No, get out of there. Why? Because of what we've seen already. Gen Genesis 39, 12, interestingly, God gives us a, a picture of this in Genesis 39, 12. Listen to this. Joseph is, is in, the, in the presence of Potiphar's wife says, it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was in there. She caught him, this is Potiphar's wife, by his garment, saying, lie with me. He left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, she fled outside. She called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came to me, and she lies. But you see what Joseph did? To his own disgrace, to his own hurt, what did he do? He fled. He didn't play around with it. He fled. And, and guess what? Did it cost him friends? It did. Did it cost him his, his jail? It did. Did it cost him severely? It did. 
I'll tell you what it didn't cost him. It didn't cost him his reputation with God because he fled. It did, he didn't destroy his own body because he fled. And God's presence, listen to me, God's presence, if, if we would, as I thought about this all week and I just kept going back to this sermon and just writing and writing. God's presence, listen, is the central fact of Christianity. If we would just grasp that. Satan wants you to think you're alone watching TV. You're alone watching the internet. You're alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're alone. You're not alone. Christ is in you. He's with you. I mean, that, that's why we see Ephesians 5 Three. Listen to what Ephesians 5, 3. This sets the bar so high because Christ is in us. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You know what he says there? Not even a hint. Not even a hint. It should be, I mean, when we read stats that the church looks like the world, do we wonder why we're not able to reach the world? It goes even forward. Listen, listen to verse, it goes farther. Verse 12, he, say, he goes on to say, verse 11, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Again, our culture would say that's crazy. But listen to this. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Not, not, not only is it disgraceful to, to pursue them and to participate, Paul says it's disgraceful even to talk about them, to kid about them, to converse about them. Not even a hint. We are in God and God is in us. Grasp that. That is a privilege available to every child to literally live at his feet, to bask in his presence. And, and to, to, before we try to wiggle out of what sexual immorality is or try to excuse this or that behavior, or, and our culture is very good at that, redefine the terms to justify our behavior. Paul uses a very, very broad term here for sexual immorality that literally would be any sexual thing outside of marriage. Any. Interesting, you go to Song of Solomon, around about verse uh, chapter 7 or something, he talks about do not awaken love, do not arouse love before it so desires. Even to, to, even to even lead in that direction, the Bible says, is foolish. Why even go in a direction that you can't, you can't go? It's like going to a store when you know you're in debt and shouldn't buy anything in there. Why do you even go? He says, don't do it. The implications here are, are personally, what do we watch? What do we listen to? What do we dress? All that. Don't wake. Not only do not awaken desires in my own heart that I can't fulfill if I'm unmarried, don't awaken desires in somebody else that they can't fulfill. Anything outside of a married man and woman in agreement is sexual immorality. To even prompt it is sin. And to even speak of it, I mean, listen to this. 
It, the, 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 the idea of, of not even, shameful to even speak, this takes it to a whole nother level. May, maybe you refuse. Maybe you puff out your chest and you say, you know what, I don't do any of those things. and I don't. But do you watch them? Is there immorality in your TV shows? I'm not talking about pornography. I'm talking about ABC, NBC, CBS. Are people sleeping together who aren't, their, who aren't married? Absolutely they are. Every single one of them. Are they degrading what Bible says is a real family? Absolutely they are. What about, what about your TV shows? Promiscuity in them? People fooling around? What about your movies? Do, do, do the TVs and the movies or even the songs you listen to, do they treat sexual immorality lightly? Do, do you read books that include that kind of behavior or talk about it? Fifty Shades of Grey? Even there, I mean, think about the title. How do I get around something? Fifty Shades of Grey. It's gray. It's not black and white. No, it's black and white. It's sin. It's sin. Do, do you do anything that makes light of the biblical standard of sexual morality? Do you joke about it? Do you laugh at work when others talk about it? Listen, we can't say the behavior is wrong and pride ourselves on not participating, but then watch it for entertainment. Endorse it that way. That's called hypocritical. That, that's an arrogance and a pride that says, I don't do it, but I'll watch somebody else do it. That's hypocr it's hypocrisy. And, and the reality is, the danger of that is this. And I was reminded... In Romans 1.32, listen to what Paul says. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those, he's talking to the Jewish people, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Listen to what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. You see the hypocrisy? You may not do it, but do you watch? You may not do it, but do you give hearty approval to the ones who do do it? Students, do you want to hang out with those cool kids that are doing it to, so you can be cool? You're a hypocrite. Are you jealous of those kids that are doing it because of all the, all the, the uh, popularity and all that comes with that? Why were you jealous for someone who's sexually immoral? We live in a world, listen, where we're, if we stopped right there, you know how out of date we sound? How out of date we sound? And as I said earlier, before we start thinking about others here, before we try to push this away, before we start thinking, I hope such and such or this community or that community is hearing this, the reality is that male heterosexuals make up the class of people who most fund the sex industry. Male heterosexuals. Male heterosexuals. That's about 50% of us in here, right here. This is not an other's issue. This is a yours and mine issue. And, and, and the reality is, you hear it all the time, well, I was born this way. Yeah, you were born with a bent to sin, just like I was born with a bent to sin. But that doesn't make it right. 
in me, every single sin, every single every person ever, every single sin that has ever been committed is right here. It's called a sin nature. By the grace of God, I haven't done some things that others have done, but it's totally by the grace of God. Totally. But it's right here. Are you born that way? Absolutely, I was born that way. But that don't make it okay. I know people that battle, that, are, that have a propensity to be angry and blow off the handle. Does that make it, well, I'm just born that way. Well, when I get angry, I hit people. Oh, well, that's okay. No. We have a sin nature. And the world is admitting that we have a sin nature. We are born that way with a sin nature. But, but when I say that, listen to me, big distinction. I don't mean the way the world means. It's still a choice. And, and hear me, this is where I, I want to say this carefully, because we, we need to be wise to culture's ways. We have made sexual immorality and gender preferences and sexual choices and all these things, we have, as a, as a culture, we have elevated these things tried to at least to the, to the level of civil rights. This is what I mean. There is no scientific um, evidence that links homosexuality to your DNA. The, the world wants us to believe that these choices, whether it's homosexuality or these other things, are akin to someone's race. Look, race is not a sin. To be black or white or Chinese or Japan, that is not a sin. None of them. We're going to talk about racism in a few weeks and how awful it is. This is not a civil rights issue. This is a choice issue. This is wanting to do what everyone doing what's right in their own eyes issue. There is a huge difference between sexual immorality and the ethnic identity of somebody or their race. I mean, again, you may be drawn to somebody of the same sex, but that doesn't make it right. It means that's a battle you're going to face just like I face battles every day and have propensities. You have them, I have them, but it's a fight. And the Holy Spirit in me makes me and helps me fight. Every single one of us has a heart that tends towards sexual sins and other sins. And that is exactly why Jesus Christ came to die, to give us a new heart and to give us a way to fight and to win the battle by finding more pleasure in Him than I do in my sin. And he does it by filling us up with the, with the Word of God. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That word filled literally means controlled. Whatever you and I put in us controls us. Without the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God richly dwelling in me, as it says in Colossians 3.16, you know what I do? I obey my flesh because that's what's dwelling in me. But I fill myself up with the Word of God and I, and I make it a habit of being around believers and of reading the Word and praying the Word and memorizing the Word. And, and even this week as I was studying this, just a renewed spirit of God, I'm in your presence. God, I'm in your presence. Everything about life is impacted by that. God, I'm in your presence. And the whole point of today is not to point fingers outside but to point fingers at ourselves. We're really good at telling others to flee Sexual immorality, but what about our own sexual immorality? What about our own? And here's what I want us to see here. You look at verse 19. Or do you not know, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit 
We are the temple of God. Listen to me. That word temple is the word naos, and it is the same word that, that they used in the Old Testament to refer to the Holy of Holies. What was, the, what was significant about the Holy of Holies? Who dwelled there? God dwelled there. God dwelled there. And nobody dared mess around with the Holy of Holies. People died for messing around with the Holy of Holies. Only the priests went into the Holy of Holies. Look, we are the temple of God. Literally, He resides in us. He resides in us. That's why 1 Peter 15 and 16 says, But as the one who called you is holy, therefore be holy in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Habakkuk 1.13 talks about the Lord, and it says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and cannot look at well wickedness with favor. That's the character of God. Guess what? That ought to be our mind and yours character. That's Ephesians 5.3, not even a hint. That's Job 31, 31 verse, I think it's verse 1, it says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a woman with lust in my heart. I made a covenant with my eyes. Why? Because I'm the temple of God. And, and my life and your life, Christianity is about representing God. So many of us are so careful about what we do in here. Don't drink in here. Don't eat in here. Don't run in here. Don't do that. But guess what? You ought to, we ought to be more careful about what we do in here than what we do in here. This is a building. You and I are the temple. You and I are the church. This is carpet and pews that can be replaced. God is here because we're here. He lives in us. If you wouldn't watch a movie here, why would you watch a movie at home? You wouldn't do it here, then why would you do it at home? You're the church. I'm the church. We're the church. I, I, was, I was reading real quickly, and I want to get us out of here on time, but it never happens, so quit fooling ourselves. L listen to me just for a second. L listen to me just for a second. In, in Leviticus 16, it talks about the temple. It talks about what it took to atone for our sins. Listen, listen, I want you to listen to the care that, that the priest took in the tabernacle. Listen to this. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Aaron's son offered unholy sacrifice to the Lord, and he killed them. Killed them. And when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died, the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Listen. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. A bull for the sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen to it, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall... Take from the congregation. He talks about the goats and all that. But over and over, here's what I want you to see. He talks about bathing and cleaning. The priest didn't just run into the Holy of Holies to make an offering for sin. He went in clean. He went in right. It says, Then Aaron shall 
if put the offer the bull and the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, he shall slaughter the bull. He'll take the uh, the fire pan, and it goes on to with a scapegoat and, and all that. But but listen, over and over again, it talks about being clean. It talks about washing. Then Aaron shall come to the tent of meeting, verse 23, and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes, come forth from offering his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself for the people. Then he shall offer up smoke, a bathe and clean. Here's my point. You and I are that tabernacle today. You and I ought to take that much care in what we are doing and watching. Why? But why? Why did they take so much care? Because the presence of God was there. And and you take that truth to my life and your life, literally God's presence, they said, was in the tabernacle, in that Holy of Holies. Listen, God's presence is in you and me. Take the same care with your body as they did with the tabernacle. Literally today, listen, we don't enter the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies. He dwells with us. I mean, this changes everything. And what I want us to see and to walk away from today is with a, with a grasp and an understanding and to practice the truth of the presence of God in your life. I mean, He has invited us to push our ways, to boldly enter into His presence every single moment of our lives, to live in His presence. Not only He in us, but we can approach Him in, in that sense, in a presence way. Changes everything. Listen, not just for an hour or two on Sundays, every day in every aspect of our lives, practice the presence of God. I, I, I was sitting there yesterday, took Bradley to get his, get his hair cut. And I was thinking about this, and, and I just started writing on my phone. Think about this. You know, we all want application, and so here's your application. I want to think about this one truth, the presence of God, practicing the presence of God and the far-reaching implications it has. When you're home alone on your computer, practice the presence of God. When you're watching TV with your, by yourself, practice the presence of God. When you're, on, when, you're, when you're on the internet on your phone, nobody's around, practice the presence of God. Students, when you're on a date with your boyfriend or go- girlfriend and you wonder how far is too far, practice the presence of God. Everything we watch, when you see a beautiful girl walk by and you notice she's beautiful, practice the presence of God. When your mind starts wandering to places it shouldn't wander, practice the presence of God. Far-reaching implications. When you travel on, men, women, when you travel on that business deal and you're in a hotel all by yourself in a city where nobody knows you and nobody's going to know what you've done or watched, practice the presence of God. He knows. He's there with you. I promise you, knowing that not only is he in you, he's with you, that will change to discipline ourselves, to practice the presence of God. The reality of God's presence dictates every single one of those and changes every single one of those. And, and as I thought about this and as we, as we close here, 
I want to boil this down to us real quick, just to ask us a simple question that, that not only applies to sexual morality, but it applies to every area of our life. And, and, and here's the bare bones of it all. And you see it on your handout. Ask yourself this question, do I hate my sin? Do I truly hate sin? I mean, do I grieve, do I grieve over my sin? Or do I excuse it? Do I laugh it off? Or do I grieve over it? Do I realize, as Daniel led us this morning singing, do I realize the cost at which my salvation was procured, was paid for, was purchased? Jesus' life. For every single one of my sins. He died for every single one of my sins. Do we treat that lightly? The struggle is, do, do we, I think when we understand the, 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 the egregious nature of sin and the terrible nature of sin, when we read in Matthew 5 where he talks about if your right eye causes you to stumble, poke it out, if your left arm, you know why it's so aggressive? Because sin is that terrible. And he's saying if you've got to go into heaven maimed, it's better to go into heaven maimed than not go at all. Sin is that terrible. And we've got to hate our sin, if for not any other reason, because I am the dwelling place of God. Christ dwells in me. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I have a new identity. And my, my position as Christ is to reflect His character. And He died for those sins. John Piper said this, listen to this. I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said, and we've shared it in here, he says, our, the problem with us is not that our cravings are too much. It's that our cravings are too small. We're way too easily satisfied. He says, we're like children who are okay making mud pies in the slum because we don't know what a day at the beach is like. And we're okay with, with fooling around with, with sex and all this other stuff because we don't understand what God has offered us in Himself. He's offered us a relationship through Jesus Christ and He's offered to relate to us every moment of every day through the Word and through prayer. He says, come unto me all, boldly come into my presence. He's offered His presence. I, I, I want us to be a church that pursues a superior satisfaction in God, and we pursue it together. That, that we would hate our sin. That, that we would be in, so in love with Christ that the things of this world have nothing to offer us because we've found something better in Christ. Listen to me. A application if we close, as we close. It, it, the question becomes this. What, what we've all messed up. We've all fallen short, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to me, here's the good news. There is power in Christ to forgive and change no matter the sin. Romans 5.20, where sin, in, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. If you're here today 
and you've fallen short, let me, let me quickly confess the sin. God is able to forgive you. Confess it. Repentance is costly. It is a fundamental denial of self. It is admitting that you fall short. It is admitting that you're not perfect. It is admitting that you are wrong and God is right. There's forgiveness in Christ. Repent and be forgiven. But not only that, purpose in your heart to quit. Purpose in your heart to not go there again. You say, well, you're, Satan wants to say, well, you've already blown it. You're imperfect. What's one more time? Devastation is what's one more time. More hurt is what's one more time. More destruction, that's what's one more time. Further separation from a relationship and intimacy with Jesus Christ is one more time. More images in your mind that you're going to battle with the rest of your life is one more time. The gospel calls for a radical fleeing of sin in every area. If you're not guilty yourself, be willing to forgive others who are. I hear it all the time, you don't understand my this, that. No, 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 be willing to forgive. Because listen to this. How much has God forgiven you? A lot. A lot. So much so that I could never repay it myself. Jesus Christ had to pay it. Forgive others. Lastly is this. Seek others who can help you overcome the sin. Seek others. We are the body of Christ. We are in this together. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.22 as I close. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. You understand, you're fleeing lust and you're pursuing someone greater. Righteousness, Christ. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Listen to it. Here's the point. With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're in this together. If you're battling, if you're being whooped, there are men, there are women in this church who have overcome right where you are. They understand the fight. I will match, I will secretly put you together with somebody that's willing to help, that's willing to encourage, that's willing to, to tell you to keep fighting. We're in this together. And, but this is a very real battle. My sin affects you and your sin affects me. Walk with somebody. Help somebody. Humbly ask somebody to walk with you. To hold you accountable. Th that we would learn to hate our sin. To hate our sin. To see the effects of sin. The devastation of sin the way the Bible does.